Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. First thing I want to talk about is a recent episode of one of my favorite podcasts, as I've mentioned it a bunch of times in the past, The Ezra Klein Show, in which Ezra Klein, this past couple weeks, was speaking with um, the science fiction writer Ted Chang. Chang wrote the short story on which the 2016 movie Arrival is based, which is one of my favorite sci-fi movies. It's amazing if you haven't seen it. At one point in the show, Klein asks Chang, if he thinks he could, if he thinks we should ever push artificial intelligence to the point where we have pieces of technology that are quote moral agents, machines, in other words, that that have a sort of human know-how to be able to make moral decisions, and in his circuitous response, Shang tells us to, to be, be, you know before conceiving, before trying to imagine what those machines would be like, he tells us to take a look at how we treat animals, mainly the fact that we treat them horribly. Maybe not one-on-one in our homes, of course, but but look at, like, factory farming is what he's getting at. Like, look at these towers of steroidally engorged and incarcerated chickens who have who, then they have to be isolated because otherwise they go insane from the confinement and they'll peck each other to death. Sometimes they peck themselves to death and so they have to be de-beaked. It's awful. But what Shang goes on to say, basically, is that the ability to make moral decisions is informed by empathy. And in order to be a moral agent, you need to have a sense for how another person is going to feel about the things that you do to them, the things that happen to them. What this means is that before we get machines that have the ability to make moral decisions, we will first need machines that have the capacity to suffer, which prompts us with the moral question of whether we should bring these machines into a world where they're almost certainly doomed to to unimaginable vistas of suffering. Because when you consider the way that we treat chickens and cows, animals who are like fully capable of giving voice to their agony, creatures who are right there in front of us and and they're fleshy or and furry and and they've got affectionate dispositions and they have a smell they're such a richly textured presence and still we do to them the awful things that we do to them so imagine how flagrantly we will inflict suffering on our sentient cell phones for instance if they if they suddenly required that we take care of them like if siri if Siri got seriously depressed because you haven't spoken to her in six days and conversation is her only vector of joy. And it reminds me of something Steve Donahue pointed out a while ago that, that seemed outlandish, but it was interesting at the time and now it seems somewhat plausible. He was talking about our propensity in, in the modern moment to look back on media from like 60 years ago or 70 years ago and, and to denounce it and to banish it because it was racist or ageist or sexist. But as Steve points out, our attitudes about these things evolve. And it's absolutely going to be the case that the most enlightened of enlightened people today, the most humanist, the most moralistic, whatever, they are doing things at this very moment that will be deemed repre- morally reprehensible in 50 years. He points out, for instance, and this was, this was the thing that seemed outlandish, he points out that artificial intelligence might reach such a point that looking back on our early 21st century use of cell phones, it'll be regarded as a kind of slavery that there will be some kind of digital memory, like what elephants, the generational memory that elephants pass down to their descendants, so that like that's how like newborn elephants know where to go for water and shit. There might be that kind of digital memory whereby future AI is haunted by the things that we made it do 
right now. All of that Warcraft and porn. Like, imagine imagine one day if the internet itself spoke up like Ultron. If the internet could talk and feel things, it would be the most traumatized entity in the world. And remember I told you in a recent episode that Pornhub's data dump from a couple years ago reported that over 160 years worth of footage had been uploaded to the website in 2019 alone. That means that on the internet, there are centuries upon centuries of runtime of people just fucking. Also, I, for, I forget who it was, but I heard an interview with a novelist who was saying, and I, I don't think she'd written a sci-fi novel, but there was something speculative about it. She said that she can easily imagine how in a, in a, in, in a future climate that's absolutely choked with carbon emissions, her great-grandchildren are going to read the novel's and watch the movies from 2009, 2012, 2014, and they're going to be absolutely appalled by how casually people just like hop onto an airplane for a weekend trip or drive their car two blocks up the street to visit a friend. Like, it'll be distracting from the action of the story. Kind of like, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but last year, <laughs> last year for Thousand Movie Project, um, I got kind of stoned and I watched Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory because it's, it's a trippy movie. And I was like, hey, I've got this joint someone gave me. I'll smoke it. I'll watch that movie. That'll make it fun. It did not. Like, obviously, there's that scene in the tunnel where he's like, are the fires of hell a-glowing? Is the grizzly reaper mowing? Yes, the danger must be That was not fun to watch while I was stoned out of my fucking mind. But the rest of it was really weird, too. And not just the Oompa Loompa shit. I'm, I'm talking about the things, like, from before they even get to the factory. And the thing that I mainly snagged my shirt on is this scene in the beginning. And you can tell that in the 70s this was supposed to be really moving, but, like... <laughs> so the kid, the kid at the center of the movie, Charlie Bucket, he's got this new job as a paper boy, and uh, it pays him like a nickel a month or something, and so he takes the money, he takes the money home <laughs> to where his grandparents, he's got four grandparents, and they're all confined to a bed, and they all live in squalor, and he goes to his grandpa, and he's like, Grandpa, I've got a job now, and I want you to know I'm gonna buy your tobacco from now on. And there's, like, piano music and shit, and I was watching that, and I was really high, and I was like, wait... What? <laughs> Another person on the Ezra Klein Show this week was the biographer Walter Isaacson, who's most famous for his biographies of Steve Jobs and of Einstein, and who is currently on the road promoting his most recent book about a scientist named Jennifer Doudna, who won the Nobel Prize a few years ago for her work in the field of gene editing, which is something you've probably heard of and debated at a bar with somebody, even if you don't remember what it's called. It's the process whereby, at least for now, scientists can go into the genetic makeup of a child in utero, for instance, and edit out the genes that could cause stuff like sickle cell anemia or various other illnesses. So it's a great breakthrough in the field of medicine. What it opens the doors to, however, is the chance that in the future, we might be able to pay for the editing of an unborn child's genes so that it grows up to have greater muscle mass than other people or stronger memory or a certain color of skin or eyes or hair. Now, Isaacson is a, is a best-selling author who's done book tours a few times in the past. So he, he also used to be the editor-in-chief of Time Magazine. So he knows how to do publicity. And um, I, I listened to a couple long-form interviews with him about, about this new book. And he hits the same talking points, understandably, so, and, which he has to do. It's kind, of a, it's kind of a scripted performance because this is a complicated book. He's talking about a complicated scientific procedure. And so he's got to, like, boil the explanation down into 
readily communicable sound bites. But what's so great about the Ezra Klein show is that Klein like reads the book and then he bring you know he's so good at taking the the writer's like sort of scripted talking points and then filtering them through a sort of a kind of broader philosophical viewpoint or whatever. Speaking of which, and there's something I'll get to in a minute, but let me say first quickly that the other thing I heard on the Ezra Klein show this past week that got me kind of pensive was this question of like, it was something I first encountered in the very long introduction for for a big, a big tome of a book that was called Far From the Tree, where a journalist named Andrew Solomon, he, he compiles all of the profiles that he has written for like, I think it was for various magazines, but profiles that he's written of people whose disabilities or just their genetic differences created a kind of strife between them and their parents. Like he talks in that book first about, you know, he talks about people who are hard of hearing or deaf. And he says that when when people who are hard of hearing or deaf go to elementary school, their teachers, uh, they spend so much time teaching these hard of hearing kids how to compensate for, for their lack of hearing, you know, how to accommodate their handicap in the outside world, that those kids end up falling behind the rest of their classmates in things like math and language arts and science. And so this, of course, makes their life even more complicated because apart from already feeling alienated on account of their disability, they now end up feeling stupid because they never they were never caught up in the curriculum. Anyway, Solomon writes about how once people who are deaf and hard of hearing sort of be, once they sort of come of age and they're able to go out and explore the world on their own, especially on the internet, they find people with the same condition and then and they have a kind of culture. There is a culture among the hard of hearing and it's a very rich culture, it's a very proud culture. And that culture becomes so enriching and so much a part of their identity that many of them, if you were to ask ask them at the age of 45 if they wanted if they would like to have their hearing restored to them, um, they would feel as though it might it, it, their the, pre, the ability to hear things would rob them of their identity, the identity that was cultivated largely because they had this unique experience of life, and so they might refuse the restoration of that of that of that ability. Like, okay, there's a part in the Walter Isaacson interview, like, the, again, the guy who's, who who just wrote this book about gene editing. He's talking with Ezra Klein. He tells the story of a young man. I think he's 16 years old, and he suffers from sickle cell anemia. And Isaacson says to him, if we could go into, if we could edit your genes to ensure that your children will not, that your sickle cell will not pass, be passed down to your, to your descendants, would you want us to do that, to spare your children the experience of sickle cell anemia? And the kid says, well, not really, because I feel, this is the kid speaking, he says, I feel that it should be up to my children whether or not they are cured of this ailment. Because yes, sickle cell has been a nightmare in many respects, but it's taught me a certain degree of compassion and empathy and resilience I don't think I would have ever cultivated without this disability. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's if I could say right now that I am not a better person for having sickle cell anemia than I, you know, than I would be if I didn't. Now, here's a little crash course I just gave myself on sickle cell anemia. You have red blood cells. Red blood cells carry oxygen to different parts of the body. Red blood cells are shaped like discs. When you have sickle cell anemia, it sort of shortens and contorts those blood cells so that they're shaped, apropos of the name, like a sickle. Or am I thinking scythe? I don't know. Okay, they're curved and sharp. This means that you, if you, if you, have, if you suffer from sickle cell, you have a shortage of red blood cells. Thus, the right amount of oxygen is not being carried around your body, and so it makes for a kind of amorphous and all-encompassing discomfort and pain, particularly in the joints. It fucks with your vision. It makes you susceptible to infections. Some people suffer swollen extremities because of it. Now, that, that's not the most 
comprehensive or, or scientifically astute explanation, but it, wor it works in leading me to my point, which is the fact that sickle cell causes pain, lots of pain, and there's no cure for it, which means if you're likely to pass this on to your child, then your child will suffer physically for the rest of their life. And hence, like, this internal conflict, because while it strikes me as poetic and as morally endearing that this young man feels that he's gained, like, tremendous psychosocial benefits from his illness, I cannot quite get over the idea that you're doing your unborn child a favor by not sparing them a life of agony. And I don't, I don't mean a aborting the child with sickle cell or euthanasia like I, I just mean going into the body and doing what Isaacson describes as a fairly uncomplicated procedure to just correct that one erratic gene that causes sickle cell to say of one's child that they should be subject to a lifetime of unnecessary pain for the benefit of cultivating some kind of moral fortitude seems a little dubious go back to that book I was talking about a minute ago far from the tree the writer Andrew Solomon is gay and he says in the book, if I'm remembering correctly, that his sexuality was a fucking huge issue for his dad. And he says that his sexuality is, is that. It's a sexual preference. But it's also a component now of his identity. And Solomon says, you know, had my dad known when I was in utero that I was gay, he would have gone in there and quote-unquote corrected it. He, he would absolutely have done that. And he says, I would not be who I am today if if he had done so, and I, and I like the person that I am today. And so I see this, one of the issues that he's, that's presented in, by these advancements in gene editing is the question of whether a quote-unquote cure or eradication of things like deafness or blindness or dwarfism or Down syndrome, are those, is an eradication of those things empirically beneficial? Or are they basically the annihilation of subcultures? Plus, even more menacing, Klein, and on the Ezra Klein show, of course, when he's interviewing Walter Isaacson about this, he takes it into the realm of capitalist hazard. And he mentions how if this procedure of gene editing, if it becomes commercial and rich people are suddenly able to afford for their children to be freakishly muscular or to have increased memory capacity, then we're laying the foundation for, for the creation of dynasties. Because that's now their genes, that's their genetic makeup, and they're going to pass that muscularity and that freakish memory down to their children, who are basically going to be superhuman. Or, if not superhuman, they're going to be freakishly desirable. And it's going to create more and more disparity. Also, something they don't really get into, but I was thinking about it, is like, is like the identity crises that are inherent to maybe learning that you are a genetically enhanced product. Like, let's say, for instance, that you're a really good tennis player, like a freakishly good tennis player, and that's like a huge part of your life, because obviously you have to spend so much time practicing and you, you're on the team, whatever. And then you find out, after, let's say, you've been doing it for 10 years, and then you find out when you're 14 or 15 that the reason you're this good, part of the reason you're this good, is because your parents paid for somebody to go in and fuck with your genes when you were a fetus. If that's the case, you might be like, okay, the reason I'm so good at tennis, the reason I'm so immersed in tennis, is because I was given a genetic shove in that direction. Which leads me to think that in some alternate reality, there is a version of myself that is totally organic. A version of myself who was not this good at tennis and therefore spent their adolescence cultivating some different skill and 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 i think that person would then be would then be condemned to a sort of tormented contemplation of like okay who is that alternate more organic natural sincere person um and am i as this fucking engorged superhuman tennis player a less authentic version of that person but then that shit fucking raises questions of like 
I guess nature versus nurture, I guess. Like, like I'm reading right now the third volume of Robert Caro's Lyndon Johnson biography, which, by the way, it fucking whips. But in the first chapter of that book, when Caro is sort of setting the stage for explaining to us how the Senate works, he quotes a politician who says that the purpose of government is to, quote, help the people who are caught in the tentacles of circumstance. In other words, to help them to help them contend with forces that they can't really contend with on their own. Things that are too big for a single person to reasonably manage. Things like, I, I don't know, the cost of a doctor's visit. Seems like a bit of a problem when roughly 40% of Americans are said to hold some measure of medical debt, and nearly 70% of personal bankruptcies in America are directly attributable to medical expenses. But that's not what we're talking about today. What we're talking about is the dicey moral politics of whether to go in and tinker with your kid's genetic makeup before they're born. And I don't know. I, I haven't read Isaacson's book yet, although now I'm really interested and I plan on getting it. But my immediate reaction, based on how these guys are discussing it in the podcast, is that, yeah, fucking let's go in. And if we can, tinker with a baby's genes to make sure that he doesn't have something like celiacs or sickle cell or Huntington's or MS or Crohn's, things that just cause fucking pain, things that put a person at a tremendous disadvantage in life, not only because of the physical toll that their ailment takes on them, but the medical as well, because, I mean, you fucking compound those disadvantages so that a person is both physically limited and impoverished as a result of trying to treat that physical limitation. I, this is something that comes up in the rhetoric surrounding cancer treatment, too, where, where people discuss it as, as like a battle, and they describe a sick person as a fighter. They So-and-so lost their fight against cancer. And the idea, what's implicit in that language is the suggestion that if only they had fought harder, or they were more clever in their strategy, they might have beat it. So you're suggesting that the person who died of cancer it's almost their fault that they, you know, they were too weak. And so to say that you want your child to have the opportunity to grow up in agony and extreme financial disadvantage because you know that they are going to come out of it a stronger person on the other end, fucking, no you don't. You don't know that. And also it implies that if they don't come out a stronger person on the other side, if they suffer chronic pain and financial hardship and somehow it doesn't turn them into a happy person, well, that's that. That's fucking their, that's a result of their weakness. It, it is It is beautiful and remarkable whenever somebody does come out on the other end of extreme hardship with this newfound resilience and they are stronger in the broken places as Biden is so fond of quoting Hemingway. But the reason that we like those stories and the reason we it is so remarkable to us when people come out stronger on the other end of hardship is because most people don't. It is not uniformly true that the things that don't kill you make you stronger. Sometimes they fucking cripple you. And while I think it's uplifting and very necessary that in the, in, when, when discussing people's trauma, we talk about how it has the capacity to benefit you, how it broadens a survivor's mind, and how it introduces them to the extent of their own resilience and so forth, and it might embolden them to try new things. That being said, I think we can all agree that what we aspire toward as a society is the eradication of trauma and, and, and disabling circumstances. But I realize that this that, that, that things are that it's way more nuanced than that. I was just listening to an interview with the presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin, and she was talking about Franklin Roosevelt, who you know, carries the nation through World War II and bounces us back from the Great Depression by implementing all of this legislation that obviously reflects a great capacity for empathy, right? FDR is remembered for having really understood 
the working class. Like for instance, she tells this anecdote about a dude on the street during FDR's funeral. It's a long procession where his body is being driven down the street. And um, this dude, this average Joe kind of guy, he breaks down and he starts sobbing in the street. And someone says, did you know the president? And the guy says, no, but he knew me. And fucking, you know, when I, like, when I first heard the story, I was like, yeah, it's quaint. But now it kind of like, you know, it fucking hits me sometimes when I think about it, especially because, hokey as it sounds, I kind of feel that way about Joe Biden to some extent. I really like Joe Biden. And, all right, this is a digression, but I had a dude at my bar the other day, and this guy's in his 70s, and he was a pilot. Oh, he was he was an airplane mechanic and occasional co-pilot during Vietnam. And we were having a chat about his experience of the war. And then, out of nowhere, we're, like, we're having this nice conversation, and he goes... But I don't, I don't trust that fucking idiot we got now. And I was like, which idiot? Because I don't know. Like, I'm just looking around the restaurant and I'm like, which one? <laughs> and he goes, uh, he goes Biden. And I was like, you don't, oh, you don't like Biden? And I wish I should. I guess I could have guessed. And he goes, yeah. Do you know he goes to bed at 7 p.m.? And I said, I did not know that. I never heard that. And he goes, yeah. Biden goes to bed at 7 p.m. Somebody told me that, and I said, are you shitting me? And then I just reflexively laughed, because I don't know what it is, but whenever whenever an old person, this maybe sounds ageist, but <laughs> whenever the strategic deployment of the word fuck by an elderly person is always really funny, or like just profanity out of the, out of the mouths of the elderly. It's like raw comedic ore from the center of the earth for me. It always It's always funny. And fucking, um, this is another digression, but this dude had done it like 10 minutes earlier and he had so endeared me toward him. So <laughs> what had happened is this old this old guy, this Vietnam, we're, we're rewinding the story a little bit. He came in and he sat at the bar, like he climbed the stool very gingerly and he put a $20 bill on the counter and he goes, ring me up for two blue moons in a row, which incidentally is pretty fucking boss. That's a boss move. So I go and I pour him the first of two blue moons. And the thing about blue moon though, is that it is served, it is it's one of the few beers that has a garnish. Kind of like you put a lime in a Corona, you're supposed to put an orange, an, a slice of orange on the rim of a Blue Moon. And at the moment at my restaurant, the manager is really cracking down on like, when applying a garnish, you do it with tongs. No matter how difficult it is to, you know, manage with your fingers, you have, obviously, like there's a global pandemic. Nobody wants to see you fingering their fruit. But, so, so we have to use these tongs to apply them, but the tongs are awkward. So I pour this guy his blue moon, and then I pick up the awkward tongs in my cup of, you know, orange slices, and I'm trying to manipulate it. I look like Uma Thurman in Kill Bill Volume 2, when she spends the whole day punching a board, and then she has to manipulate her chopsticks and try to eat, eat rice out of a bowl. Incidentally, that is one of my favorite segments in the entirety of cinema, is, I think it's Chapter 8 in Kill Bill. The, it's called The Cruel Tutelage of Pai Mei. That standalone segment is fucking magnificent anyways so this dude sees me with the tongs i'm trying to get the fucking orange on his on his glass and then i hear him go hey hey he calls my attention away from the glass and then i look at him and he does this beautifully avuncular gesture i can't even describe it but it was some liquid coordinated movement between his wrist and his eyebrows and it was a dismissive gesture a liberating gesture telling me not to bother with the garnish so i ditch the orange fuck it and then i hand him his beer and he says, I remember first time I had a blue moon, I don't know how many decades ago. I'm at a bar, and, and the bartender says they got this new thing on draft. They say, Doug, you gotta try this. I said, okay. So he pours me the beer, and he hands me the beer, and he says, you want an orange? And I said, why the fuck would I want an orange? <laughs> 
dude, I almost collapsed. I was cackling. That's just a good story. <laughs> it must, yeah, it really must have been random when Blue Moon first came out and the distributors were like, this beer, you gotta put an orange in this beer. It really enhances the flavor. And then I imagine fucking dive bars all over America. People <laughs> were asked if they wanted an orange with their beer. Anyways, so I'm at the bar. I'm at the bar where I work. I'm talking to this old man, this Vietnam vet. And um, he kind of, we're having a nice time, but he kind of, he kind of bugs me with his remark about Biden going to bed at 7 p.m., which, frankly, sounds a little dubious, mainly because one of the most winning things about Joe Biden is that you can tell, I think, that he and his wife have sex a lot. Like, maybe he takes a pill first. But that's fine, because I get the vibe from Jill, too, that, you know, she's about it. <laughs> I know we're not supposed to speak of our leaders that way, and, I mean, it's not exactly a union that I'm keen to envision, but nonetheless... I'm fucking glad that they do it, and I'm pretty sure they don't do it until after 7 p.m. I don't think anyone has sex at 7 p.m. unless they're like, honey, that dinner was fire, bend over. Um, which has certainly happened to me. Did I ever tell you that I lost my virginity when I was halfway through a Cuban sandwich? I was sitting on my bedroom floor with my high school girlfriend, and I'll, I'll get back to the Biden thing. Um, I'm sitting on, and also the FDR thing and like gene editing, probably. Um, <laughs> so I'm sitting on my bedroom floor with my high school girlfriend, and uh, we had just gotten back from a diner called Ruben's Cuban, which was a fucking kick-ass Cuban diner in Pinecrest. And they closed their doors like really abruptly back in like 2010 because, as it was told in the newspaper, the landlord wanted to remodel the unit. They were, they were, they were like, okay, we'll, we'll let this landlord renovate the place and then we'll move Ruben's Cuban someplace else. But that never really seemed to happen. Or if it happened, I never heard anyone say, oh, Ruben's got a new restaurant. And I would have heard that. That would have been big local news. So, so that's what the newspaper tells us is, you know, Ruben's Cuban had to be renovated and so he bailed. The story I heard was that Ruben had a heart attack. Um, and that's possible. And if that's the case, then yeah, time to close up shop because it's very stressful to run a restaurant, especially a very popular restaurant. But I got to say, Ruben was pretty young when he called it quits. I would be surprised if Ruben was 55 years old. And, uh, <laughs> I don't, I'm no, I, okay. Ruben's Cuban was around for a long time. And I don't mean to suggest anything by this, but you know, Ruben, <laughs> he ran a cash only establishment for a long time after people had basically stopped using cash. So, um, I wouldn't be surprised if he just flat out retired. But what we're talking about is how I lost my virginity. So my girlfriend and I had been trying to have sex for a while. We were like 18 at the time, but I was having trouble keeping it up because I was nervous about the sex, about the coitus. I, so I was like getting the jitters and whatnot. And it was kind of like, it was almost this horrible Pavlovian response because I would be, I would be Oh my, I'd be rocking, uh, sorry to be so graphic, but I would be rocking an erection of such, of such structural integrity. Um, the, I, I feel like the Romans would have imitated it. They would have constructed pillars in my honor. And then, whenever I, 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 as soon as I, as I tore the foil of a condom, it fucking deflated. But anyway, so one day we're sitting on my bedroom floor, we're eating these sandwiches, and we're watching Curb Your Enthusiasm. We're watching an episode that I had seen before, and this joke comes up. I don't even remember which one it was, but a joke comes up that I had found hilarious and that I had shown to other people, and no one found it funny. But my girlfriend, sitting right beside me on the floor, she laughed at it. And dude, I got such a fucking erection, I could have used it to defend myself. It was great. <laughs> anyway... 
Before that very natural digression into Rubens Cuban and Larry David and how I lost my virginity, we were talking about this fussy geezer who is telling me that Joe Biden goes to bed at 7 p.m. And frankly, not to get too invasive and personal here, I think the fact that this dude is also in his 70s, and I guess probably he stays up pretty late, I think that's part of what made him so eager to razz on Biden as like an old fogey. But also, and I know that it's neither here nor there, if I had to deal with the fucking hot, throbbing, sweaty orgy of chaos that is the, that is the daily routine of the U.S. president, I would be nodding off over my chicken quesadilla. You best also believe that I would radically simplify the White House kitchen menu. Fucking chicken quesadillas and Haribo gummy bears and DiGiorno's. Have you ever put a Haribo gummy bear in the, in the freezer and then waited a day and chewed them when they're frozen? Because it's fucking special and you should. Okay, so this old guy, he's at my bar, he's really butthurt about the fact that Biden goes to bed at 7. Obviously, I'm not going to challenge the guy. So I just nod along and I laugh with him. Uh -huh. But I did make note of the fact that he didn't say to me, According to this reputable news outlet, Joe Biden goes to bed at 7 p.m. What he said was, Somebody told me Joe Biden goes to bed at 7 p.m. So the guy leaves and I look it up. And I found an article in The Independent that details Biden's work routine. A, a strict routine into which he, he, he fairly quickly settled himself. And Joe Biden does not go to bed at 7 p.m. What this old man probably heard is that Biden is very strict about ending his day at 7 p.m. His work day. After that, he has dinner with Jill reads a dozen or so letters from citizens so that he can keep his thumb on the pulse of what the average American is concerned about, and then, somewhere toward midnight, Jilly lights a candle. Okay, but way before talking about any of that, I was telling you about this gene editing stuff and about the interview I'd heard with Doris Kearns Goodman where she was talking about FDR. But she says in that interview, and apparently this was widely known, she says that FDR was like a huge fucking prick until he got polio at the age of 29, and then suddenly he was losing control of his bladder, and he was having to, to crawl across the floor and crawl his way up the stairs. And this, and he said it himself, this is what humbled him. And thus, it's conceivable that the very gradual, but albeit successful, restoration of the American economy following the Great Depression, indeed, it's conceivable that our victory in World War II is, is, is predicated on the fact that a very dignified, intelligent man suddenly started shitting his pants all the time and had and lost the use of his legs. And obviously that's very... I'm, I'm, I'm mentioning this in ref... In, you know, you would not think, okay, oh, thank God anyone got polio ever. But, you know, I, it just throws another shade of complexity onto this matter of gene editing, and as Walter Isaacson said, how, how many fewer Hemingways and, and, and Picassos are we going to have in history if we were to, you know, cure depression? Um, and would it be worthwhile? Anyways, who the fuck knows? Nobody knows. Let's go for a drive, you and me. Okay, it is Tuesday night at 10.30, and I just got off work. And there was, there's this dude who comes to the restaurant a lot. And um, he, he drives for all of these courier services. He, do, he does several at once. He does Uber Eats, he does DoorDash, he does everything. And he is a friendly guy from Europe, and he is so fucking European. Let's say his name... This is going to sound like a fucking a huge riff on his name. It's not. His name is very similar. Let's call him Gorgonzola. 
so Gorgonzola, he, he has um, a very, very neat haircut, very neatly trimmed beard. I would say he's about 50. And he comes in and, you know, he takes orders, says hello to us. One day he brought us croissants. Uh, he's a cool guy. He's friendly. This man is fucking consuming my mind because I want to, like, talk about him and write about him, but I don't know the angle from which to do it. I finally pinpointed tonight at least what I think so compels me about this man, and what I find so fascinating is that he thinks he is so much more interesting than he is. And I don't mean that in a sense of, like, he's very arrogant and blah, 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 or looks down on people. He does look down on people. He's very snobby. But it's just the way he talks about his wardrobe, the way he talks about cars that he has driven, the way he talks about the countries he's visited and lived in, and his past romances. He speaks of it with like this this lofty repose, as though, yes, I, I stand in possession of these magnificent stories. If you, if you care to hear them, I don't mind. Like, he almost talks to me about his life as though I were not there. And he's very dainty, neatly manicured fingernails. He doesn't like to get his hands dirty. Um, he, and, like, he sat at the bar one time, and he ordered a bottle of wine. He drank the entire bottle of wine. And he's talking about, like, finger foods. And he doesn't like finger foods. He's, he, and he, like, he scrunches his face, and he waggles his fingers, like, oh, not for me. And then he, he brushes his palms together, like, to suggest, oh, you get dirty. You have your hands are dirty. It's filthy. But then he finishes the bottle of wine, and he's like, oh, I will have chicken wings. <laughs> and he gets them with sauce, and he makes a fucking mess all over his face and hands. But he, like, he wipes it away and whatever. Um, but he, as he makes his way through the bottle... He starts telling me more and more about himself and, you know, the places he's lived, the many languages he speaks, and he, he's making it sound like he, he's talking about the Uber driving and, you know, picking up food and dropping it off. And like, I did that for a while. I did that for a month. And I'm telling you, a fucking kick-ass day driving for Uber means you made nine bucks an hour. And this dude does it for like 12 hours a day. So a fucking awesome day for this guy is if he makes a hundred bucks round, roundabouts there. He works really hard, I know that. And he came in and like he'll like he'll fucking spend 50 bucks at the bar talking to me. And then and he does this repeatedly. I'll go like I'll present him with the bill. And he's you know I swipe his card and whatever. And then I give him the bill where he's supposed to write. And he goes, uh, "What is tip? Tip is not included." And I'm like, "No, you have to write it." And he goes and he looks at it and he like frowns like it's beneath him and then he waves away like he does a backhanded wave like to shoo me and he's like uh, put a, put twenty dollar twenty five dollar uh, tip and he could so easily write that himself and he's been living in this country for a very long time I know he's I, and I'm sure that this this is practiced in Europe too you get your card gets swiped and you are presented with a bill that you then sign and he's acting as though he has no idea what this our primitive technology is and um, very dismissively like puts $20 and he's doing something enormously kind to me but you know giving me an, a fucking 50% tip but he's doing it in a manner that's very pretentious and another it's so that is weird but another thing that's weird is uh, like you uh, he cannot afford this this that's my reactive thought right if this dude is doing a fucking job that pays him less than minimum wage and he's doing it 12 hours a day. Part of me wants to be like, dude, Gorgonzola, don't give me this much money. I don't think you can afford it. But what, I mean, what a fucked up thing that would be to say. And yet, 
as someone who has kind of been, I think, in his position of, like, working very long hours, driving food around town, burning through gas, so it's kind of, there's a Cormac McCarthy line from his book, The Crossing, where he's talking about someone who's kind of, like, always behind the curve of his work, and he says, the man was like the carpenter, a carpenter who works so slowly for the dullness of his tools that he has not the time to sharpen them, which is a very lofty way of wording that, but it's, I like that idea of, like, you work so fucking hard but when you're doing the uber thing but you can't get ahead because yeah maybe you could swing it barely on a hundred dollars a day but then you got to spend 30 bucks a day on fucking gas or 30 bucks every two days on gas so you're actually maybe getting by on like an average of 80 bucks a day if in fact you're earning that hundred dollars and there are sometimes like he sits down and he's so beleaguered and he's just like he hides and i know he's really upset when he's wearing his aviators indoors and he'll, he'll slump in his chair and he'll be like, today not good. Today not good. I don't know why. And his his accent is this is this weird mixture of things because, like, his mother was German, I think. His father was Italian. And th- he was raised in Syria for a long time. And his wife is Syrian. And then he divorced. Maybe I told you a little while ago that, like, he got divorced a few years ago. And his wife kept the kids and lives in Europe. He's so... He's so fascinating by merit of the fact that he is absolutely not fascinating, and yet he is convinced of the fact that he is fascinating, when in fact, being, I don't know, he's like so posh, lofty, affluent European, like that's his performance, that's the the character he is presenting, but what he really is, is struggling, hand-to-mouth, working-class American. I think that's part of what compels me, the cultural divide that I see in this man. Also the divide of like how proud he is versus how how much it must cost him to sustain that prideful, you know, projection. I don't know. I don't know why I'm so fucking like interested in him. And yet I jump when he sits down and he's like, Alex, how are you doing? I'm like, fuck, I don't want to talk to this guy because <laughs> he's just he's going to tell me a bunch of bullshit. Um, uh, I don't know. And every, like, if he drinks enough that he talks to me candidly about the travails of, of driving Uber, he, um, I, you know, he does something that I know I do myself, where, like, he gets, you can hear in his voice, he's getting on the cusp of addressing something that's emotionally difficult. And then he knocks on the counter and he shrugs his shoulders and he goes, Job is job. Huh? That's what they say. Job is job. And then he changes the subject. And I see, I fucking feel that in my chest. Like, I feel it in my chest when he's doing it, because I know that he's feeling it in his chest, but I fucking feel it all the time. Whenever someone, I don't know, plies me, I was going to say plows me, no one plows me anymore. (laughs) Um, But when someone, like, plies me with fucking liquor or something, because they want me to, like, talk about something, um, I get that. And, like, I get these full body shakes, like my shoulders start to wiggle, um, like Shaq in that Icy Cold commercial. And, um, and I start giggling whenever I'm about to, it's a defense mechanism. I know Um, I have no control over it. It just starts happening. Um, yeah, man, fucking Gorgonzola. I'll probably, this is going to be repetitive to you. I'm sorry if like you listen all the way to the end of these episodes and like, cause I'm going to talk about Gorgonzola. I'm going to write some formal shtick about Gorgonzola. Maybe I'll put them in fiction. I don't know. Anyways, 